Hello and welcome back, imposters, to the 21st episode of the You're Not Qualified podcast. My name is Courtney Heater and I am your host with the most sniffles, I suppose. I'm getting over a baby cold, not COVID, since it is now the way to make sure that is stated loud and clear. I am participating in that not COVID. I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good. This is part two of our AI technology conversation. Part one was last week where we talked to Tanya Steer about being the director of product at an AI conservation company called Wild Me. Today, we are joined by Jason Holmberg of Wild Me. Jason has a non-traditional background and he is now the director of engineering at an AI company, Wild Me, artificial intelligence company. His background includes Arab studies, technical writing, and other endeavors we will get deep into. This career path he is living presented itself through an almost ethereal mean via some whale sharks, and I'm so excited for him to tell that story. If you didn't listen to part one, that's A-OK. It's not a mandatory prerequisite, but it will just help paint a broader picture of the team at Wild Me and the work that they do. So it's just a helpful addition to this conversation. Plus, the most important part of our needs here and the most important thing that we cover, it's all about going after a career that lights a fire in you, whether you have the traditional background to do it or not. Both Tanya and Jason exhibit that fire and that drive to pursue this thing that fuels them in a way that they didn't even know that they needed. So it's a huge message, loud and clear, in both of these episodes. And I hope that you go back and listen to that one, at least after this one, if you have not already. This conversation with Jason was one of my favorite conversations to date, and I can't wait to share it with you. Are you ready? Let's go. Lumos Maxima. Thank you so much, Jason, for being here with us today. Jason Holmberg is joining us from Portland, Oregon. He's the executive director and director of engineering at Wild Me, a, a conservation AI company based out of Oregon. Thank you so much for being here. Your background and current career are the perfect fit for what we talk about, and I'm so excited to dive in. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right, so you are the executive director of engineering. That's a lot of hats. We'll get more into it, exactly what Wild Me is, but it does focus on machine learning. You have a non-traditional background for machine learning. So let's talk about why you're really, quote unquote, not qualified from your background perspective for what you're doing now. Okay. This story goes back to Djibouti. So in the late 2002, I'm a scuba diver. I was living in Egypt and I flew down to Djibouti to go on the liveaboard and to sail and scuba dive right where Africa meets the Middle East, right there on the, in a little area called the Set Frères Islands, which I believe in French means seven brothers and there are only six islands. So somebody's math was not as good as it could have been. Yes. The Set Frères Islands are six islands, as he said, but it literally means in French, seven brothers. So the islands are West Island, Double Island, Low Island, 
Big Island, East Island, and South Island. The seventh brother is not an island, but the volcanic hill at the northern tip of a peninsula, I believe is what the seventh one comes from. But it's an archipelago proper chain of six volcanic islands spanning about 10 kilometers in an east to west line, roughly. Just a little bit of a geography lesson for you there. And Give me a thunder water. <laughs> it could be. As I was on the sailboat for a week, I had read that there would be whale sharks. I was told we would not see any. And fortunately, as we were coming up from a dive on, let's say, day four or five, there was a juvenile whale shark, which was eight foot. We rarely ever see a whale shark that small anywhere across the globe. So this was a pretty unique sighting and I didn't know it at the time, but I had the chance to swim around and see this beautiful, large fish, this shark covered in spots and just interact with it. Um, at the eight foot level, they're very curious. How did your brain even learn human speech? I'm just so curious. I'm as a you know, six foot human, still of a relatively the same size category. And myself and the other divers got to interact and swim around this juvenile whale shark before it swam off. As they get larger, if you get near a 40 to 60 foot female in the Galapagos, we really get into the Leviathan territory where as a six foot, six foot human, I don't even register in their world, which is a very humbling thing. We'll talk about that later. Um, but for some reason, this interaction off the coast of Djibouti with the whale shark sparked a curiosity in me. And I just started slow searching the internet now and then about whale sharks and then about the spot pattern. The fall of 2002, I went on a research expedition in Baja, California and got to bob around with a biologist who had a spear and a tag looking for whale sharks. And we spent a whole week finding no whale sharks. So you'd think it would be a disappointing week, but Getting to sit in the boat in the hot sun and talk to the biologist, spearing whale sharks and how inefficient it was and how we spent all week looking for one. And the tag, if we had even put it on, would never be recited in most cases, maybe less than 1% of the time, according mm. to that biologist. I, I saw as somebody with an engineering background, wait a second, if you have a process that's less than 1% efficient, okay, wait a Why second. I, and, and even at that point, you realize just with some basic engineering skills, getting a process from less than 1% efficient to maybe 2% efficient is probably within my skill set. Like I can contribute here. And that started a lot of evening and weekend research and a little bit of sample coding as I was working at Dell as a technical writer. And eventually it began a process in which I started teaching myself how to program in Java with an application toward trying to identify the individual spot patterns on whale sharks. And from there, it just started eating up more and more time as I was committed to trying to solve this problem of how do we replace physically tagging a whale shark with photographs? And if we yeah. can photograph whale sharks and individually identify them, then we can get a lot more people involved in tagging them. And if the photographs show a pattern of spots on the whale shark that lasts over time, then instead of spearing them and having the tag fall off in under a year, we can not spear them, which is I'm sure the animal is much happier about, and we can track them over decades because it's hypothesized that these are very long-lived animals, 60 to 120 years, potentially more. So there, there was an entire revolution needed in how that animal was tracked and there was no one else working on it. And so I started programming and that's the, the start of my journey into conservation was 
a guy working late at night at Dell on Friday nights and weekends trying to figure out how we could change how whale sharks are tracked over time. I, I love that so much. And it goes back to what we were talking about before recording in terms of you are so curious, but there's also that element of very passion because you were like, I want to make this more comfortable for the animal and also much more effective for the longevity of this study. And so would you say that like curiosity and passion are two of the main elements that you look for even for building a team? Absolutely. We have a very non-traditional, there are a a few of us who come from the software engineering background. Um, Some of my staff have very diverse backgrounds, went to code school and then joined us. Largely we're uh, a, we look a lot like a software startup team, but we're in a 501c3 nonprofit shell, which makes us a, yeah, it makes us a very unusual organization in how we fundraise. It's a very hard road in that we don't have your traditional VC funders, angel funders, et cetera. So we have to be very creative in, in how we raise money and how we operate. But I tend to look for curiosity as the, the foundation of any employment. We go back to the discussion in the business world, of, is it better to have skill or luck? And I look at it differently. It's better to have curiosity than skill. I would I'd rather hire a very curious junior engineer who is interested in what we do, who is looking for ways to improve things, who looks at not just the code in front of them, but the wildlife we're studying, the conditions of the field biologists we're trying to support as they study that wildlife, and looks at the whole picture and wants to know more, wants to make the research better, wants to make the code more solid, wants to support the actual use case of the biologist in the field after talking to them versus what just needs to be done in the software. And with that curiosity, especially in our field where we're working with very open-ended problems like how many animals are there? How many African wild dogs are there? How many whale sharks are there? These are very open-ended questions and the approach you take to to answer those questions isn't necessarily linear and it's gonna have setbacks and we're gonna have to try different techniques. We're gonna fail along the way and we're gonna have to learn from that. And that's where that curiosity is important. Without that curiosity, we can set tasks in front of a software developer or programmer and they can execute them. But that assumes that we know the path to our destination along the way. And in many cases, we don't. We just know generally we want to arrive at an end goal of let's build AI to study gray whales. Let's build AI to study giraffe. But along the way, there's going to be a lot of questions we have to ask the field biologists. There are going to be limitations around the technology that we have to work around. And in all of that, a sense of curiosity is critical. And then the skill will come along as we apply, as we train, et cetera. Do you know, in 900 years of time and space, I've never met anyone who wasn't important before. Yeah, people want to develop and get better, especially if they're curious. So that's, yeah, yeah, it's like a given. So is this like a pioneer product? Is this something that no other company is doing? So there's really no template on how to do it in terms of there AI is, for this? Uh, absolutely. There, there is no template. We're really looking at supporting wildlife biologists in different modes of data collection around a general question, how many animals are there? So if we step up to this sort of 50,000 foot view, we begin asking questions like, what does it mean to be endangered? When we talk about an animal is endangered, it's very difficult to understand at a high level well, what does that mean? Are are they going to go extinct or not? And even at a a sort of 10,000 foot level, 
Well, is the population increasing this year or is it decreasing? How about over the past five years or the past 10 years? And we're really beginning to explore this conversation of what does it mean to be endangered? And what does it mean when a population of, of African wild dogs, giraffe, whale sharks, whales, what does it mean when it's increasing or decreasing and what can we do about that? And so circling around to what we do, we try to build data management software, which is all open source and AI to allow researchers to a scale to the modern world where there's a lot more data coming in, especially in the visual realm, which is where we generally apply AI, computer vision, and then be open up new avenues of exploration. Can we support them with AI that allows them to ask questions that didn't exist before or that couldn't be answered before, let's say. And that's our general approach. They can ask questions that they couldn't have asked. They might've wanted to, but now they can ask them and hopefully find answers. That's so cool. And the, oh, can you remind me of your, the main product or the first product that you guys had the book? The Wild book is what Wild it's book. called now. So if we go back to my journey in 2002 and 2003, um, you know, sitting at work or at home, trying to figure out how to match the spot patterns of the side of whale sharks based on extracting the XY coordinates of their spots and trying to match them in some kind of wow. grid with a lot of trigonometry. And one of the things that hit me very early on is that 90% of the problem was not developing a matching algorithm. It was managing them. I managed to partner with an astronomer and a biologist, and we eventually found the algorithm. The biologist, who is Dr. Brad Norman in Australia, had already been collecting whale shark photographs under the hypothesis that the computer vision would come along, which is where I stepped in and a friend of mine, Dr. Zavan Arzamanian at NASA, stepped in and developed that algorithm. Oof, I just have to quickly plug Dr. Brad Norman who Jason just talked about. So Brad Norman is awesome, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Queensland in Australia. He was actually honored in the Queen's birthday 2019 honors list, and he was awarded a member of the Order of Australia due to his work researching whale sharks at Western Australia's Ningaloo Reef for 25 years. So he's been researching for 25 years, collecting these photographs, understanding that that technology to identify them more accurately with those photographs would probably come along in his lifetime, which is just such a cool foresight. But his dedication and passion for conserving whale sharks is truly awesome. Again, that's Dr. Brad Norman. So look him up if you are further curious. And we came together as a team and we figured out, okay, we actually can match individual whale sharks across years using simply photographs from different photographers, photographs of their flanks, their left and right sides. But then there was a giant data management problem. Where, where are we gonna get this data? Where are we gonna put it? And then how are we gonna run this spot pattern matching on that data. So we ended up building something that was originally called the Shepherd Project, just thinking along the lines of managing animals, and eventually became Wild Book. Feast your eyes. And that is the data management platform that integrates with computer vision to allow wildlife biologists to have somewhere to put photographs and data about a species, um, to curate that data, really answering three questions, who, where, when. So which individual animal did you see? Where did you see it? And when did you see it? 
And actually those three data points are the input to what are called marker capture models or statistical models that rely on seeing individual animals repeatedly or not seeing them and creating statistical models about the population. And with those statistical models, you can figure out how many animals you have or what their population trajectory is. And circling back to the 50,000 foot view, if you know how many animals you have and you know how that's changing, you can really look at this question of how endangered are you know, these animals. And you can see that trajectory changing. And if you have the data and the trajectory, you can then begin to evaluate conservation strategy. Should we put up a fence? Should we take down a fence? Should we allow fishing on a reef? Should we ban fishing on a reef? And then we can inspect the population trajectory as a result to see if it's having any impact at all. So we're really trying to get to this concept of data-driven conservation strategies and even better iterative data-driven conservation strategies where we're applying our engineering skills, our data management and computer vision and the biology knowledge of the customers we serve and their in-country linkages, their contextual understanding of local conditions, local management authorities, local politics, to take this data and translate it into a locally acceptable and locally successful conservation strategy where they really are protecting the animals they're studying. And so this, this product Wildbook with its integrated computer vision and now machine learning since you know about 2015 when machine learning really started taking off. This is our product, if you will. It's open source and we look forward to others being able to contribute and not have us as the only way that um, these kind of studies can share their data across borders and for multiple species, in fact, in a wild book and really pursue this collaborative approach in the cloud of getting researchers together to not only curate their own data, but look for matches in populations across projects, across borders, across ocean basins, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Through this comprehensive and thorough explanation that Jason has just given us about Wild Book and how it helps scientists collaborate together. I'm sure that you could probably guess if you hadn't known before what open source might mean, but just to be inclusive here and just in case, so open source software is a computer software that is released under a license in which the copyright holder, which is most likely in this case Wild Me or maybe even Jason, grants users the rights to use, study, change, and distribute that software and its source code to anyone and for any purpose. So you and I could go in and use the data found there and also input data that we might want to add from any animal that we could be studying hypothetically. And there are other open source databases out there like the Liquor Control Board, I believe has one. So if you are practicing querying skills, you can use open source data tables to say, okay, how many bottles of wine were sold in Austin, Texas in 2019? So that kind of information you could gather. And that's what Wild Book is allowing these scientists to do. So they put information in there. They can also take information from there and use them to aggregate the data and splice it out and statistically model these 
trends that they are seeing. So it's just an excellent way to bring these people that are literally on opposite sides of the world that would not know of each other's research otherwise into one open area where they can collaborate and maybe never even meet in person, but they can see each other's data and help each other in that way. And it's just so blooming cool. Data that they might not have had any access to. That's amazing. And structured in a way that they can compare it. That's another right. um, situation we came up as we began developing computer vision and a data management platform. We realized that every biologist we worked with, marine and terrestrial, had a different database, a different file format, a different set of fields that they collected. And that really increased the challenge of them even getting together in a room and comparing their data with each other, let alone with the global community. Yeah. What out of just plain curiosity, what granularity level do they have over control of the databases? Say that there's a field that they really want that's not in existence. Can they actually go in and develop the database further to be able to then like query more fields when they need to? Yeah. Yes. So actually we're coming up with an entirely new user interface. The current Wildbook platform actually started with me sitting at night at Dell developing code. Oh um, yeah, and a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, and we developed it over the past 19 years, which is wow. awesome. Anytime you can develop a user interface and a platform that lasts 19 years in software, I'm super happy with that, but it's definitely showing its age at this point. So we're about to release the next generation of Wildbook called Codex. And it will have some of those customization features where a researcher can walk in and say, okay, I'm a zebra researcher. Grass height that the you know, zebra are grazing on is important. Whereas a cetacean biologist, a, a dolphin biologist would look at grass height and go, this is useless. I can't have this field in my database. I don't want it. And so that kind of customization is now um, being built in so that users can directly influence their codecs and the data they collect. So you're coming up at four years at WildMe, is that right? from your LinkedIn at least? If you look at the point at which I quit my day job and ah. began, then yes. Like, if, you look at, if you look at the origins of our technology and our organization, I believe this December is year 20. Oh yeah, that makes sense because that's as long as it's been around. So it's been a project of yours for two decades. That's amazing. You talked a little bit about your background, technical writing, coding, things that really would help you in this. Are there any other skills that you can pinpoint from what you learned in college or what you learned for Dell maybe that are, were directly helpful in developing this software? Yes. Um, I view an engineering degree, which I had a chemical engineering degree, which is Right. Not at all applicable to marine biology in and of its direct application for the math I did, et cetera. I view an engineering degree as the foundation for a problem solving degree or another way of phrasing that I view engineering as an invitation to problem solving, not necessarily as a domain specialization. There are very specialized engineers who are very good at what they do. I took my engineering degree to mean I've trained in some problem solving skills and now I'm going to go try to solve some problems. My mind rebels at stagnation. Give me problems, give me work. And so definitely the approach I've taken in developing the software and trying to help wildlife biologists is a trip that harkens back to an engineering degree in which I spent a lot of years trying to learn how to solve problems, though that engineering and its application to chemical engineering doesn't help me at all. Similarly, I have a master's degree in Arab studies, which I loved. 
I thoroughly enjoyed. While I enjoyed chemical engineering from a sort of general, I'm problem solving, trying to make myself smarter and more skilled, my Arab studies degree was a passion project. I chose to do that master's degree because that was the subject I was interested in. I got to travel in the Middle East, learn to speak Arabic. And in that, I developed some of the social skills, some of the contextual awareness I need to understand conservation and to bring that back to what is now wild meat to understand that conservation needs to be tied to the local environment. We as wild meat software engineers, machine learning experts, we're not saving any animals. What we're doing is being the support staff, the enablers of different local conservation efforts that are saving individual animals. We're their biggest fans. They're our customers, even though we're open source and our job is to help them. And so having that Arab studies degree in whatever roundabout path definitely helped me understand the need for local application of conservation, local translation. And from that, I've definitely looked and seen some of the most amazing conservation strategies executed in local conditions in ways that we as outsiders from far away would never have been able to succeed. And so that Arab studies degree definitely helped me. Similarly, I was a scuba diver, so I always liked mm -hmm. being underwater. And this project started out with whale sharks. Now we apply it to many different terrestrial and marine species, but being a scuba diver and loving to just sit and watch a reef and then watch big sharks go by, that definitely contributed to, to where I am today as well. Mm -hmm. How long have you been scuba diving? I've been scuba diving since I was 12, wow. but I'm not an especially experienced diver. It's been bursts of diving in there, but not continuous diving. I'm trained enough to go underwater and be safe but there are many more experienced scuba divers than me out there. It's, what is that, two hours from the actual Pacific Ocean? So do you have scuba diving available? Like Seattle, we're right next to the Puget Sound and people do it out there. But do you have that kind of like open water available in Oregon and Portland? Generally, we would go up to the Hood Canal, Puget Sound to uh, do yeah. some very cold water diving. It's so cold out there. I know people wear dry suits, which is... I want to learn to scuba too. And it's people are warning me like dry suits are more expensive. And if you want to rent them, especially if you want to buy them, and then it's like a different type of learning environment and everybody's just go to a tropical place and learn there. And I was like, but then it's not applicable here. And I could only go to tropical or I'd have to relearn some different aspects of it. But yeah, scuba diving seems amazing. Dry suits are great too, because you really are warmer and in your path of learning as a scuba diver, I did drive and it's absolutely worth it to just be able to go into your local environment and be comfortable. Yeah. And also your local environment is just so much more accessible, which means you can go out and really begin to long-term appreciate it versus just tourism, pop in, pop out, hope you saw something. If you can long-term scuba dive in a location, you really get to know it. And then you're going to really see the amazing things that are rare, but you've been down long enough to encounter them. Yeah. And we have such cool things on the Puget Sound, right? Like we have giant Pacific octopus. We have a bunch of different whales. It's so cool. There's so much to explore out there. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about imposter syndrome. So you bounced around a lot in terms of even what you were passionate about, right? Like Arabic studies and like your engineering background chemically, and now coming into your 20 year journey with the wild me idea. 
Did you ever feel like you weren't qualified? Were you ever afraid to take the next step? Every day for 20 years. It doesn't go away, so why not embrace it? It doesn't go away, why not embrace it? That's gonna be our little sing-song mantra because it doesn't go away. Yes, I'm sure that many people suffer from imposter syndrome. I probably suffer from it every day. What I've gotten better at is understanding that, well, yes, there is a whole host of people out there who are far more qualified to do my job and to do all the tasks I've done over the past 20 years. The problem is none of them showed up. So here I am. My background is non-traditional. And as somebody who is curious and also tries to hold themselves accountable and maybe a little bit harsh on myself, maybe a lot harsh on myself, I get to see not only what I want to do, which means that I'm thinking about not only what I have to do today, but where I want to be in a year and how maybe I'm achieving today's goals, but it feels like the goals for a year from now are slipping away, or I'm not achieving all the things I can imagine. And I can imagine a lot of things that I want to do, not all of which I will have time, funding, effort, labor to do. But then I also, because as executive director, I'm a leader. I also, you know, am accountable for when things go wrong, when projects don't succeed, when um, there are bugs, things aren't working out the way the field biologists we work with want. I have to go into the room and talk to them directly, sometimes apologize and figure out, okay, how do we fix this? Where do we go from here? And so it's great being a founder of an organization, but I am critically aware of everything we do wrong how we have big dreams and we can only do a certain amount of work every day without burning ourselves out. And so we, we're going to have to pick and choose among our dreams on what we want to work on. And along that way, it's very easy as a founder to emotionally get lost and think about all the things you're not doing, all the things you're not accomplishing. And then we get into these meetings with these field biologists when we do something right and they remind us oh yeah, we're absolutely linking up the communities of African wild dog researchers across all these countries and all these different organizations. And I love having that meeting on a Friday because it means I can go into the weekend just with this good feeling of, oh yeah, actually we're winning. We're doing okay. And it's very easy as a, when you're responsible for an organization to, to get lost in the things you're doing wrong or how you're not achieving your dreams, even though the, the array of dreams I have is a vast overcommitment of the amount of life I have left and, and all of this. So along that way, circling back to imposter syndrome, you're going to get imposter syndrome all the time because you know what you're not doing. And there are many more traditional people. There are traditional nonprofit executive directors who were trained in that job and who are leading organizations successfully. I come out of the technology background and I've had to shift into that and it is its own learning curve. And there are whole areas of it that I still discover to this day of, oh, I can do that. I should have been doing that. Oh, okay. I guess an executive director needs to do that. And then I have to shift and do things like that. And that's shifts from coding over to doing taxes and going through all the different due diligence steps you need to run a nonprofit transparently and with accountability. And of course, there are people that are qualified to do that. And it's the same in machine learning. Fortunately, WildMe has been in this rare position among technology conservation nonprofits that we can hire and retain not machine learning experts on staff, which is wonderful. And so we have the actual qualifications to do the things we propose, 
but definitely myself, my background is not in machine learning. As a matter of fact, it's in Arab studies and chemical engineering. So I've had to catch back up and not only learn the technology and its capabilities, but develop the instinct for when should we apply it and when shouldn't we? When is it ready to you know, go after one of our dreams or, or when are we really waiting on new developments in machine learning before we can even chase that down? And there too, you can't help but think, geez, there's gotta be somebody who would know the answer to this, even though quite honestly, there might not be. Developing an instinct is such an interesting viewpoint because you have to, yeah, develop when to know when to make that move, when to maybe seek more money, when to all of these different aspects of it. Did did you have any mentors or anybody to help you along in the business aspect of this? I feel like I'm going to say no, Mm. and then I'm going to offend somebody. I've definitely (laughs) had advisors along the way. Um, my biggest sounding board right now is Dr. Alex Deegan, CEO of Conservation X Labs. I bounce a lot of ideas off of him. On the machine learning side, I'm definitely advised by Professor Tony Berger-Wolf at The Ohio State, Professor Charles Stewart at Rensselaer Polytechnic. So I, I get a lot of advice, but when I started developing what is now the nonprofit organization Wild Me, there weren't a lot of technology conservation nonprofits. There there wasn't a template for it. How do you raise money? Should we register as a 501c3? If we go open source, is somebody to swoop in and steal our technology and then just make us obsolete? All of these things I had to figure out along the way using the best. And of course, one of the wonderful things about being an executive director and having staff is I have a lot of wisdom I can draw from in my staff. So along the way, they've definitely contributed to my success in innumerable ways, but there wasn't necessarily a mentorship along the way, circling back to your question. Amazing. So you you do have a lot of really awesome people at the table right now. I love that. There's, There's a podcast I really like to listen to. It is called Ologies. And the host is Allie Ward, and she talks with people of different ologist professions. There's this one woman she talked to a few episodes ago who is a carnivore ecologist. Who's counting? But I think this might be the third time in an episode that I've mentioned Allie Ward and her amazing podcast, Ologies. But I just really love it. And if you guys don't listen to it, please go listen to it. It's really cool and it's full, chock full of scientists that are ologists. And we talk to a lot of those people from the non-traditional sense on this podcast. But the woman I'm speaking about for this particular episode about carnivore ecology, her name is Dr. Ray Wynn Grant, lions, tigers, bears. Um, Oh my, I think that might go. But you know, it's a great episode. And it's really cool. Allie Ward is cool as shit. Also, if she ever listens to my tiny itty bitty podcast, like in the grand scheme of anything that's crazy that could happen in the world, wouldn't that be so crazy? Um, Just reach out and say hi, because I really like you and I look up to you. Okay, bye. And she, at the end of the episode, really hit home for me an idea that, because somebody wrote in and they're like, how do I get into conservation? I don't have a scientific background. 
And she said that there are barriers to entry for conservation in general, for even if you want to be a biologist, even if you want to work at a company in a technology way that's studying conservation. But those barriers to entry is something that she and other conservationists are trying to break down because she believes everybody has a seat at the conservation table and all of your unique abilities and unique interests and passion, curiosity, it belongs there. And it sounds like you have the same type of feelings around it. Would you, would you agree with that sentiment that everybody deserves a seat at conservation? Yes, because it's all of our world. And also, I definitely believe in the open marketplace and competition of good ideas. Yeah. Um, one of the humbling things when we talk about raising education levels and improving standards in education. And this is something I think about a lot as a parent of a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old. I'm a parent. I haven't got the luxury of principles. One of the things that comes to mind is we're raising these standards and trying to raise the quality of education so that we don't miss the next Einstein, the next Ada Lovelace, so that we're not missing these geniuses that we need to solve some of the very pressing problems, and we're not demoralizing them. Understanding that there is genius in, in C students, that grades are not reflective of who people are, neither are ACT and SAT tests. There's Everybody has something to contribute. And in conservation, we have to apply the same logic, which is we can't be filtering out good ideas. We can't be filtering out local viewpoints when thinking about how to solve a global problem. We can't be filtering out people with good ideas, but non-traditional backgrounds. We want that, in fact. One of the nice things about the technology revolution is there's been this gap in the rapid advance of technology and the, let's say, um, the move of that technology into the, the traditional ologies, right? The tech, technology stays ahead of the teaching in the ologies. So there's always more cutting edge technology that can flow backwards into biology and, and to physics and elsewhere. So exploiting that gap is an excellent way for people to break into conservation. And there are other ways too. Most conservation organizations, when they hit a point, they need all the other skills too. They need an accountant. They need a person who like taxes. There are, there's room for a, a lot of different skills and those skills, you know, aren't just, don't need to be narrowly focused. Your tax person can absolutely help you fundraise and go for tax breaks that help you fund the next project and be a part of a core team. Even if they're doing the taxes, they can be embedded in and be a part of a core team whose focus is, let's improve how we study African wild dogs. So th there's room for everyone. I took advantage of that open door around technology. Mm -hmm. And especially as technology becomes more and more open source, the financial barriers to access and entry just drop and plummet. When you can become, even if temporarily, the expert at something, the expert at cross-applying a technology to a specific domain in wildlife, even if that word expert isn't because of training or because of education, it's because you simply sat down and did it. That's enough to be an expert. Just sit down and do it. Mm -hmm. And if somebody says that you can't do it, find a way to do it anyways. And Ignore oftentimes them. the... Yeah, there are barriers that you think of as barriers, like budget, yeah. that actually can lead to innovation. There are whole technology chains in my development of the Wildbook product 
that I have thrown out because they're expensive. And throwing out an expensive technology allowed me to look for something more effective and less expensive and to innovate. And so along the way, those barriers can actually help you find the next best thing because you can't afford the expensive technology that seems like it's blocking you from entering a domain. So yes, there's a room for everyone at the conservation table. There needs to be a room for everyone. And it's really important in how we as conservation practitioners behave that we don't discourage others. One of the things I'm learning in my journey as executive director is how to be a better communicator, how to say thank you more, how to say I'm sorry more, how to inspire, even if it's to say, I can't work with you right now, even though I wish I could, we just don't have the time. We get every, every week, we get a couple of people, generally young technologists asking if they can help. And there's simply not enough time in the day to engage everybody. We would have to train them. We have to answer their questions, et cetera. And we have a small staff and we have grants we're you know, executing on. We have projects that the federal government is paying us to do. And we really have to honor the things we're doing right now. Excuse me. We have to honor the things we're doing right now. We're not in a position where we can infinitely work with everybody. But even in those exchanges, I try to just start the email by saying, thanks for reaching out to us. Conservation needs your skills. Like just to let them know, maybe I'm not the person you work with, but you got to work with somebody. You're valuable. And just getting that across to them. And then just being frank, hey, we're really heads down on projects right now. That doesn't mean we don't want to work with you. It just means we don't have the time right now, but please, here are five other organizations. Here's the AI for Conservation Slack. Let me at least in some way in this communication, give you access to more resources so that you can find that perfect fit project. And learning to communicate that way and to try to inspire people, however small, has been a part of my learning journey in running this organization. Yeah. So no matter which way we slice it, I'm sure that climate change has been impactful for the types of species that you're studying and decline or in some cases rise if a climate is becoming more favorable for a species that was not endemic to the area or something along those lines. Do you think, and this is a loaded question, but do you believe the government is doing enough to halt the impact of climate change for species survival? Like what more should we be doing for conservation in the climate change area? I don't think any government's doing enough. I would struggle to find any biologist or conservationist that we work with who would honestly say that their government is doing enough. I think it's universally applicable. Part of this, I think, to really think about climate change and wildlife. I think right now it's very dispassionately thought about in terms of warming seas, warming temperatures, differing migration routes, lack of access to food. We look at it as this third-party problem for wildlife. And it harkens back to when I grew up and watched all the Mutual of Omaha documentaries about wildlife, and, and I wasn't a wildlife biologist and I had nobody in my family who was a biologist. So I was very much an outsider looking in at the world of wildlife research. It was very much presented to me that these are chemical machines. They're all, when they're migrating, they're going in circles. They're going back and forth along the line. And it, it still feels like that when we talk about climate change, that we're talking about these 
chemical machines being altered because the ocean's warmer, because there are wildfires, because food sources are scarce. I think in order for society to do enough for climate change related to wildlife, there needs to actually be a, a psychological shift in how we approach it. And we're starting to begin to see that, but it's not enough. One of my favorite news articles to come out in the past five years was an op-ed by Dr. Shane Giro, a sperm biologist who studies pods of very social singing sperm whales off the coast of Dominica. And he talked in the New York Times op-ed about how the loss of sperm whales should not be interpreted as just a loss of biodiversity, just a loss of wildlife. It is a cultural loss. We are losing song and society as these populations of very social whales are lost, as they decline. As we begin to look at animals, not as chemical machines, but as independent actors, feeling, having emotion, more specifically making individual choices and group choices that differ year to year, we begin to see something that approaches the need for, let's say an animal bill of rights, the right to safe migration, the right to safe spawning grounds, to safe breeding grounds, the right to food, the right to water. That is when we'll really get to a point when we begin to look at these rights and all the things that wildlife need to survive, not as chemical machines, but as individuals who may vary their patterns and make deliberate choices. That's, I think, the moment at which you'll see the shift to potentially governments doing enough because they acknowledge that there is more than just action and reaction in the system, but actually deliberation and the need for respect mm-hmm. for these, not just our, our natural resources, but for the other creatures that use those resources and inhabit this planet. And so that psychological shift is very apparent to us because in our work at, at Wild Me, we do marker capture and it requires us to identify individual animals. And when you be look, begin looking at a population, not as chemical machines or them, but as individuals going to different places during the year, making choices, passing song from group to group across the Pacific, in, in that case, humpback whales, we in our jobs begin to understand these are our brethren on the planet. These are not others. They are just us, part of us. And that's the psychological shift I think we need to really understand what we can do for wildlife and climate change. But what are we, a team? No, no, no. We're a chemical mixture that makes chaos. We're, we're a time bomb. Until then, I think governments do a lot of aggregate decisions. There are some excellent individual conservation actions to protect populations that are really on the edge and may still fail. But in general, no, there's not enough effort being put in. And certainly there's definitely not enough funding going into conservation. I think circling back to Alex Deegan of of Conservation X Labs, the the estimate I heard from him was that potentially we get about 3% of the budget we need to actually um, invest in conservation. So I, I think even the investment by government is a great indicator that governments are not doing enough. There's a, an effort 
that's happening here in Washington that is pretty monumental on the government level in terms of looking at conservation. And I'm very proud that the issue is on the table now, but it's the removal of the lower Snake River dams. And I believe that there's three of them. And you mentioned sometimes it's the spawning grounds and that's exactly what the issue is here is the salmon populations are in decline heavily. The whales that live here as eat those salmon and the whales are now in decline and that's a big factor. There's other factors too, but it's a big factor to why they're starving. And these salmon cannot get to very critical spawning habitat up the Snake River because of these dams. But at the end of July, they're actually voting on whether or not to take them down. And it's incredible because this has been, I, I don't know the exact time, but probably over a decade of talking about it. We absolutely need to take these dams down for not only the salmon survival, but you have to look at the ecosystem that it supports as well. Quick clarification and quick extension on this. So yes, the Lower Snake River dams in Washington are a critical habitat area for the salmon that the things that are in the water eat, including the whales. The dams, there are four of them, not three, like I said, and we're the closest it's ever been to the conversation of removal. So what does that mean? It means that there is a movement to remove them. U.S. Senator Patty Murray and the Washington State Governor Jay Inslee have committed to providing a comprehensive report by mid-May to look at replacing the services of the dams. The service of the dams, uh, they're hydroelectric dams. They provide a lot of electricity for the area. Washington relies pretty heavily on hydro power for electricity. So if they decide to support the removal of the dams, it is something that will be decided by July 31st of 2022. So they have the end of July to decide. I said vote here, but nobody is voting as far as I know in terms of the people yet. I wonder if if it goes through the governor, I don't know if they would put it to a vote again. I'm actually not quite sure of that process, but I'm assuming that if the end of July, the governor and the senator, Patty Murray, say, okay, we're going to take these down, then I'm pretty sure that they come down. So it's a huge monumental thing, and it would be one of the largest, if not the largest, movement of conservation the United States has ever seen. It's uh, been a huge ordeal, these four lower Snake River dams. If you're at all interested in it, it's pretty fascinating historically in terms of the uh, everybody that is involved in trying to get them down and the camaraderie around trying to save a staple species of the Pacific Northwest, which is the salmon. And it's nothing is a silo. And it all needs, like we all live together in this world. And I totally agree where it's, we're seeing them as a means to an end, but they deserve bodily autonomy and they deserve to be seen as their own entities and something that isn't anywhere near a means to our end, but they need a means to their own end. Like it's, they deserve everything. I'm really excited about it and I hope it goes through. I'm always impressed by conservationists, local advocates, who do take those decades though. There are people yeah. who will call a meeting of interested parties and three people will show up and they'll do that for decades until they get 
the goal they want. Yeah. That's the type of um, local conservation that we try to support because it's, it is executed by people who understand local conditions and can advocate for the right solution versus a national solution or things like that, that I'm always impressed by those efforts. And even if they take five or 10 more years, the fact is there are people who will spend that five or 10 more years just to get it done and hats off to them. I'm incredibly impressed. I can't imagine how often it just felt so Sisyphean, which just it's like, you're not getting anywhere with a lot of it, but they did. You're right. They got somewhere. And now it's the first time I believe that it's ever been on the government's desk to be able to remove these critical dams, as people would say, because we rely so much on hydroelectricity, but there's other ways to get our renewable energy. But yeah, it's, that's a big one. And I'm hopeful for your optimism. I appreciate the optimism behind it. We have to go through all that we do with optimism. I, I don't believe these animal populations are doomed. We're doomed. I honestly believe that wildlife over the course of its evolution is far more powerful and adaptable than we give them credit for. Yeah. That doesn't mean we have to stop any conservation action, just the opposite. We need to support wildlife and their adaptation. And so I think there's a lot of room for optimism, but it, there's still so much hard work ahead. Yeah, there really is. There's tons. So what advice do you have for other people who want to maybe follow your path? Like maybe they have a language degree or something, a degree that it's not directly relatable to conservation. What advice would you have for them to break in to the industry? A couple of different pieces of advice. One, just do it. Along the way, there will be people who tell you, you can't. And honestly, there's not a lot of them in conservation. It, I think I thought there would be more barriers ahead of my participation than there actually were. Oh, that's good to know. There, there are absolutely times when as a non-academic, I have to stop and I have to write a paper and appreciate academic peer review and the slow process, the painful process that is to legitimately get something into the scientific dialogue with due diligence. That said, that is a part of the journey, but I have not hit the academic ivory tower. You can't do that. Mm. So along the way, I thought there would be doors that were locked to me and it was just me being worried that they would be locked. And I simply opened them and found a lot of professors, a lot of field biologists who were open to good ideas. That said, the burden of a good idea is that you have to do something about it. If you have a good idea, you have to do it. You can get people to help you. You can build teams, you can get volunteers, but it's not somebody else's burden. And so along the way, I've thought I've had great ideas and I conveyed them to others and they said, well, that's a great idea. You should do that. And I thought people would show up and you're all going to help me. I have a good idea. The answer is Probably not. Sometimes it's just you and your idea and that burden is on you to go forward with it, but do it. And one of the best strategies I've had in working with a lot of people who frankly, maybe a lot smarter than me in the academic world is 
to show enough initiative to do it and say, okay, folks, I'm gonna try this new machine learning approach. I'm gonna try this new software design and I might screw up. And I just want you all to be aware that I'm doing it. And then I start doing it. And along the way, people go, oh my God, if you do it that way, here, let me help you. Okay. And it's actually a really successful strategy. Show people that you have the initiative and that you're gonna do it whether they help or not. And a lot of times when experts see that effort, that initiative, and the fact that you're gonna do it anyways, that's enough for them to know they're not wasting their own time on an effort and that they should help you, and they do. And so just keep moving forward with your idea. Understand there will be setbacks. A lot of, also approach it with that, with a flowing mind. When you see a barrier flow around it, figure out how do you innovate around that? How do you get that data that you need to train a new machine learning model? Who has that? Who should you ask? What, what do you find online that would suggest who the right person to solve that problem with you is versus the expert, mm-hmm. you know, the public expert on that species? So there are many different approaches, but uh, I think along the way, I intimidated myself. Don't do that. And I learned that the burden of the good idea is my own and just to keep working on it. It's sometimes it feels like, yeah, you're overwhelmed by the amount of thoughts and ideas you might have, but it's just find the channel and go down your channel, but don't block yourself off. Don't damn yourself and just keep it going. And I find that it's almost, it's not accepted widely enough that it's really okay to just Google something that you don't know. Like you can do that in any job almost. Just if you don't know how to do it, just Google it more than likely, at least you'll find somebody else that's trying to ask the same question. Yeah. I think another thing along the way, if, as you try to enter conservation from a non-traditional background and you have a good idea and you want to execute on it, be prepared for an emotional journey. I someday want to be on this handle of founders who are giving good advice. And then somebody asks me, do you have an emotional story about your journey? And I'll say, give me 20 minutes. Let's talk. Because (laughs) Along the way, as a founder, as a person with a good idea, as somebody who wants to step into an area that they're not qualified for, we've already talked about imposter syndrome. That's huge. You can beat yourself up all day long with imposter syndrome, and yet you still have to put one foot in front of the other and do the thing you want to do. But there's also, be prepared for a little bit of depression. You're going to hit roadblocks. You're going to find that you need a good idea and magically one doesn't show up and you're going to have to step away, reset your mind, Mm -hmm. think about other things, go for a walk, whatever it is to get your brain to bubble up the idea you need to then flow around the problem, overcome. If you see a barrier in front of you, sometimes it's to take two steps back and take a different road. All of those things, you can't just assume they're going to just pop up and be the solution is going to be right there for you or that you're going to be happy along the way all the time. You're going to get frustrated, depressed. You're going to feel bad about yourself because things aren't working out. And understanding all of those are incredibly natural parts of the journey is, I think, something I wish I could tell people in advance. You're going to do something hard. You're going to do something you're not qualified for. It's going to be a little depressing. You're going to have an emotional journey while you're working on the problem you're trying to solve but accept that emotional journey as being part of it, as being part of the process and natural. 
and you're going to get there. You will succeed. You will find a path and an avenue. And then I think another thought is go where you're loved. So one of the things I see when I pick and choose among the projects that we could do at Wild Me, which is much larger than the available labor and funding that we actually have, is I'm looking for those organizations that are coming to me hungry. I'm working with this amazing set of spotted eagle ray researchers. And rather than being a fractitious, competitive community, they all come together. We're all in one big email thread. They're all pooling their data. They're all working excitedly with us to get new AI for spotted eagle rays so we can do better marker capture for spotted eagle rays across the globe. That is a clear example. Go where you're loved. They want to work with us. They're happy. They're working together. There's all the pieces we need to know, yeah, this project is going to succeed. And similarly, as you're trying to break into environments for you're not, you're not qualified, look for that signal of the accepting organization that's, yeah, we need you and follow that. Go where you're loved. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know where to start, you can always start volunteering with places, right? Like you can get out there and just join a local organization for free, see if you like it and go from there. Yeah. And I think in a, a non-traditional journey, I think some people, and I probably was like this early on, feel intimidated by the fact that they don't feel like their life's work is this idea. I yeah. never had a clear push into conservation. There was never, when I was growing up, this desire to be out in the field and study wildlife and do machine learning. There was never a clear signal, this is my life's work. And so I made decisions along the way just to simply explore and reach out and figure what I was interested in. And then I bumped into a whale shark and the rest is history. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel for a lot of folks who don't know what they want to do. And the only answer is try a bunch of different things one of them is going to stick. And then that's the thing you want to pursue. And don't expect this magic intuition or this feeling like, aha, that's what I was meant to do. It may never arrive. And honestly, you don't need it. Yeah. You got to follow your fire, follow that ignite whenever yeah, it comes up. Yeah. It's when it comes up. Yeah. Where is it going to come up? That's really hard because it doesn't just magically appear for most people, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I have taken up over an hour of your time, but I just want to make sure that in case anybody wants to reach out to you, do you, I know you have a LinkedIn. How can people get in touch? I can be reached directly at jason at wildme.org. I get snowed under a lot, but I really do try to respond. And one of the things I talked about this earlier in the podcast One of the things I try to do is at least look at the email and say, what resources can I give you if I can't work with you directly right now? Who can I put you in touch with? What community can I connect you to so that I'm not a blocker? That's one of the things I really never want to be. There's so many smart people out there who need to be a part of conservation. I don't ever want to be the person standing in their way. I want to be, even if it's just an email response, somebody who at least provided a little bit of guidance on where to look next. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Jason. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of these really like life lessons. It's like, it's like going through the gambit of every, everything we might feel, but I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your interest in 
me and, and our mission at Wild Me. Thank you. Wasn't that just magnificent? I was worried he was getting a little dodgy in the middle part, but then that finale, <laughs> wow. If you ask me, that was excellent all the way through and not dodgy in the middle in the least. But that little Willy Wonka bit aside, little goofy bit aside, what an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for listening to that whole shebang. Thank you for making it to the end of the episode. You made it. It's here. This is the end of the episode. I'm stoked to see you here. I loved that conversation so much with Jason. I loved the conversation last week with Tanya. This is an incredible organization. And I really love that this is a two-parter, which is really becoming the big theme of all of these episodes is this is what they are doing that they're not qualified for, but it's also the industry that they're in. It's the job, it's the industry, and that's exactly what this is. Jason is in AI technology, not traditionally qualified for that from his chemical engineering and Arab studies background, and Tanya, technical writing, and Jason did some of that as well. Then they jump into also conservation. So it's this twofold of there's people out there I know that are oh, AI seems so cool, but I have no background in that and I wouldn't even know how to get my foot in the door. Then there's that other group of people, oh, conservation, that is the future. We need people at that table who really, really care about saving species, but that's not me because I don't have a science background. I'm not a biologist. So these two groups of people who think that they are not qualified and they're not good enough, guess what? They absolutely are. And both of these sectors need you. Artificial intelligence needs people that are thinking outside of the box that can come to a meeting and say, have we thought about this? And guess what? That could easily come from a quote unquote outsider, somebody who has never really seen this before. And they have that perspective of not being too deep in the weeds where they can take that that sky high view and say, have we thought about this? Does this even make sense? And then you have the conservation group where it's people that are just passionate and they're curious. Like Jason in the beginning really was like, curiosity is really what hones it in for me. Curiosity is something that I know I can work with. That my sweet imposters, my sweet friends is exactly what this is all about. You are qualified. And even if you feel like you're not, even if your qualifications on paper traditionally do not match up with what you're seeing other people in those fields have, go for it anyways. I really want to touch on a couple of things too that are said here in kind of like a quote format to leave you with before I let you know where to find me and a little bit of trivia here. So Grades are not representative of who someone is. I was not a straight A student ever, not in my entire life. I got A's a couple times in my life. I was in AP English, it's the only AP class I ever took. I never even took chemistry. I didn't take any advanced math classes, nothing, which is a big reason I felt like I couldn't do anything in the technology realm. It's because I didn't have any math background. It sounds really silly now, like, shit, that sounds so ridiculous now. But that's that's how I felt, and that's how a lot of people feel. Your grades are not representative of who you are from so long ago, even in college. Two, we can't afford 
to filter out ideas from people of non-traditional backgrounds. We simply cannot afford it. We do not have that time left in saving some of these species to say, oh, we only need the people with the PhD and the best ideas. Best ideas is subjective anyways. We need people from outside of the box sitting at the table. And just sit down and do it. It was a great piece of advice. He's like, you're going to hit barriers, the barriers that actually will lead to motivation. And it will lead to inspiration and innovation if you just sit down, put your head down, and think about it and do it. Conservation needs your skill. Artificial intelligence technology needs your skill. And I promise you will have a blast doing it. So just get out there. Do that thing that scares you. Go do that thing. You are only an imposter in your own mind. And I know that's such a powerful feeling. It's a powerful feeling to feel like you can't do it. But there are a lot of people that believe in you and think that you can, even if you step in that door tomorrow and you are humble and you say, I cannot do anything and I don't know what the hell you're talking about. They'll be like, huh, maybe you should believe in yourself a little bit more. Kid, sit down and let's talk. And then let's like wrap up some of these cool ideas that you're bringing right off the bat because we believe in you and I believe in you and I know you can do it. So go get after it, friends. Winston always said that any kid in a garage could put him out of business. Is that what you've done, Milo? This is a garage. All right, off my box. But it's just, oh God, these episodes, these last two are just like, yes, yes, yes. This is exactly what this is all about. You are qualified. You are all right, my name is Courtney Heater. I can be found on Instagram at YNQPod. YN is a Nancy Q Pod. I can be found on TikTok. Don't expect much right now at YNQPod. I can be found on Twitter at YNQPodcast. If you feel like emailing me, I love to get emails from you guys. If you feel like you're a good fit, if you know of somebody who is a good fit for this podcast, please let me know ynqpod at gmail.com and if you want to connect via my website my email address and my instagram are linked there as well you're not qualified podcast.com how about a little bit of trivia in the episode we mentioned dry suits so that is a item of clothing that you put over your whole body to go in a very cold body of water in order to scuba dive. But what is the difference between a wetsuit and a dry suit? So wetsuits use a layer of water that is warmed by the wearer's body to help keep the body insulated. So there's a layer of water in there that's seeping through the wetsuit, while dry suits use a layer of air and they are fully sealed to prevent water from entering and coming into contact with the skin. So dry suit, it's your body heat, but there's no water insulation as well on the skin and then covered by a suit. It's just skin, air, suit. And we are coming up on an hour and 10 minutes, it looks like a little over. So I will let you guys go. But again, thank you so much for being here. I'm stoked that you're here. We have a 
few more episodes left until the end of season one and then we will pick up season two in August and I will get a little bit more into that in the next couple of episodes and what exactly is going to be happening there but I'm so excited to be closing in on season one and the 25 episodes that is season one with you and all of this such good information I could just like scream it's so exciting okay guys I will see you next Thursday bye